Today, I want to excite you about a study that's going to carry us through these winter months together. To me, there's nothing more important I will ever talk about with you than this subject. My hope, my earnest expectation is that at the end of it, we will really be a different people. And so today my task is to motivate us with that vision. And here's how I've chosen to do it. I'm going to focus on a word and a metaphor. A word that to me captures what God's word ought to be as we come to it. And a metaphor that will drive our entire study. I want to show you one word, and it's the Hebrew word haga. I want you to say that with me. Haga. We find it many places in Scripture. We're going to look for it today in the very first of the Psalms, Psalm 1. So I invite you to turn there with me. This is a powerful Psalm that pictures this vigorous life that is deeply rooted in the life of God. The image is found in verse 3. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. He describes what it is about a person like that that allows them to be this vibrant, living thing. We pick up at verse 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This person who is vibrantly alive, deeply rooted in the life of God, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates. We have, as many of you know, a hundred-pound golden lab named Copernicus, copper for short, And uh, like all large dogs, Copernicus has a fancy for large bones. Vitt learned from a um, veterinarian that the best bones to get are actually the fresh bones from a butcher with living marrow. We try to keep the dog away from our carpets when he has it. But it's interesting to watch Copper with that bone because he loves it. Goes running outside, sometimes he'll go, oh, the bone. He'll go pick up the bone, take it outside with him. Then then he'll come in, and then a few minutes later, he'll say, I need to go out again. So he forgot the bone. So he gets the bone, brings it back in, and then he'll come and he'll just sit over it. He'll worry the bone. He'll lick it. And if you listen very carefully, every once in a while, what you hear is this low rumble, this deep growl of utter satisfaction. The prophet Isaiah refers to, in the 31st chapter, verse 4, a similar thing when he uses this phrase, as a young lion growls over its prey. It's the same idea, like copper over his bone, a low, throaty growl of pleasure, savoring his prize. The word for growl is the Hebrew word, haga. It's the same word, that is translated in the first psalm that the man and woman of God meditates on the word of God day and night, like a dog over his bone, like a lion over his prey. Sorry if I tell you that to me the word meditate just seems a little bit of a weak translation. 
in terms of how we are to approach the word of God. Haga. It's meant to be a reading that reaches our soul, not just our mind and our heart. When Isaiah's lion meditated (laughs) over his prey, he chewed, he swallowed, he used teeth and tongue, stomach and intestines. This is the interaction we are meant to have with the Scripture. Eugene Peterson, who wrote a book that has inspired my title for this entire series and is the source of much of what I'm going to share with you today because I found the reading of it very significant, writes this, The opening pages of the Christian text for living, the Bible, tell us that the entire cosmos and every living creature in it are brought into being by words. St. John selects the term word, capital W, to account first and last for what is most characteristic about Jesus, the person at the revealed and revealing center of the Christian story. Language, spoken and written, is the primary means of getting us in on what is, on what God is and is doing. But it is language of a certain stripe, not words external to our lives, the sort used for grocery lists or for computer manuals or for French grammar books or basketball rule books. These words are intended, whether confrontationally or obliquely, to get inside us, to deal with our souls, to form a life that is congruent with the world that God has created, the salvation that he has enacted and the community that he has gathered. Such writing anticipates and counts on a certain kind of reading, a dog with a bone kind of reading. Let me ask you, is that the depth of your experience with Scripture? My goal is for all of us to develop this type of transforming relationship with God's Word. And that's why I've chosen as a metaphor to line up with this word, Hagah, this phrase, eat this book. My goal is to so impress the idea on your imagination that it becomes one of our short list of essential commands as Christ followers. You, you, know, the, you know that list. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor. Repent and believe. Remember the Sabbath. Do not be anxious. Pray without ceasing. Take up your cross. Eat this book. Don't just read the Bible. Eat this book. The point I want you to understand as we start out on this journey is first and foremost, this point, Christians feed on Scripture. All too often, we have settled for something far less We turn reading Scripture into learning or studying or using for some outcome that we have predetermined. What we're supposed to do is eat it, assimilate it like food to our bodies. Let it be metabolized into acts of love and words of life. And nothing short of it will allow us to be truly people who hear the very voice of God. Trust me, you can't shortcut it. You can't dip into the mystical and believe that God's going to speak to you uniquely, some special word or revelation, 
when you're ignoring the conversation he's already having with you that's available day in and day out, the living, active, alive Word of God. And we'll address all those adjectives in the weeks to come. So we find this metaphor that's going to set our whole tone in the book of Revelation. And I invite you to turn there with me. Revelation chapter 10. This is uh, St. John, the beloved, the follower of Jesus on the island of Patmos, a prison island. He is the pastor long distance of a group of people that are facing persecution where to name yourself as a Christ follower is to become an enemy of the state. And it is in that setting on a Sunday morning that he is visited with a series of visions. And in the middle of this apocalyptic extravaganza is this encounter that we're going to take to heart as our working metaphor. Chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. We pick it up at verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. So I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. The word that is used for scroll in Revelation 10 is the word biblos. It clearly is referring to Scripture. And so make no mistake, the symbolism here is John ingesting the written Word of God from which the angel is speaking. Let's capture this image. There is a giant angel and a tiny little scroll. (laughs) There is this explosive sermon so explosive that the thunders of heaven agree and shout their amen. That's a sermon that nobody fell asleep during. You see John's response, I need to get it down. And as he's writing, he said, no, don't write. He's told to go to the angel and take the scroll. And so he goes, and the angel says, eat it. Eat the book. And so he does. We'll talk about the variant experiences from tongue to stomach in just a few moments. But let's just explore the contrast between John's response to this powerful bringing of the Word of God by this angelic being and God's instruction to him. What's John's first response? I want to get this down. This is so good. I want to record it. So he tries to take notes, and of course he means well, there's nothing wrong with that, but what it represents is how we commonly come to Scripture from an external perspective. Let's study it. 
Let's analyze it. Let's critique it. Then let's take all of our findings and let's teach it to other people. It's not bad. It's just less than what God has in mind. It falls short of the true life-giving interaction that is represented by the angel's instructions. Don't just take notes. Take it in. Take it all in. In the same way, physically, we are what we eat. So it's true. Spiritually, according to this notion, we are what we read if we read it correctly. If it becomes not an external exercise that merely touches our intellect, but becomes a spiritual digestive process that enters into our very being, our spiritual marrow transforms our heart, shapes us, metabolizes into lives lived for the living God. John's response was external. Write it down, pass it on. God wants an internal process. Consume, be changed, live the message. It's interesting to see the result of this act of obedience. There is a first sensation that is pleasurable. It was sweet to my mouth, sweet to the taste. Many of us, when we first come to faith, find God's Word to be a precious place. We cherish and revel in the grace that we've learned. We weep as we think of the love of God that is demonstrated through the cross and the, the forgiveness that was made possible. We cherish God's promises for us because we know now in our life He is at work in all things for good. We take advantage of the sound counsel. We are inspired by the texts that move us to lift our hands in worship and adoration. The Word of God is sweet to us. One of the longest chapters in the Bible, certainly the longest psalm, is Psalm 119. Nothing short of an ode to the Word of God. The spiritual equivalent to the poem, How Do I Love Thee? Let Me Count the Ways. And this notion of the sweetness of the Word of God is captured uh, beginning in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. But I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. Haga. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. And then this, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Those of us that have had God's Word become a very meaningful thing to us can resonate this part of the experience of God's Word. And it's sweet, it's precious, but it's not the whole experience. John goes on. At first, there's a sweetness. But then as it comes to his stomach, there's a completely different experience. It is bitter to his stomach. Let me make this clear. Eating the Bible gave John indigestion. Sooner or later, we find that not everything in the Bible is to our liking. It started off sweet, 
But now some of it doesn't quite sit well with us at all. The Bible has hard sayings. They're hard to understand. And the ones we do understand, they're hard to accept because we can't really fit them into our vision of life. And it's not just the the hard sayings. But let me say before I go off of that, I, I think for a lot of us, we don't read the Bible for that very reason. We come to it when we're looking for something that we know we'll benefit from. But we avoid the Bible not because we don't understand it, but because we understand it all too well. And it's uncomfortable. Not just the hard sayings, but it's just kind of the way Scripture comes at us sometimes. Let's admit, sometimes Scripture is just kind of weird. We develop, therefore, an approach to the Bible, and many pulpits are filled with pulpiteers whose major approach to the Bible is to minimize the discomfort, to explain away the difficult things. We find ourselves experts at fixing the Word of God. So if we come to areas where it's not comfortable, let's find a reasonable, soft explanation for it. Because the last thing God would want is for for me to have a hard time with it, to get a little spiritual indigestion. Is that what God really wants from me? I think it's an essential part of the experience. We like to say the Bible has all the right answers. Sometimes we abuse that. We, the Bible becomes, instead of some sort of a comprehensive book for us to enter into and understand, the Bible becomes the, the equivalent to the magical eight ball. You know the one I'm talking about. You ask a question, you shake it, and you turn it upside down. Answers. It's like God's Word is like a magic talisman. I can open it and find truth. I'm thinking of a story of a, of a pastor that found himself broken down in a car, and he Uh, walks to a a local bar, and he walks in, and there's a man that he once knew as a vibrant Christian and a wealthy, successful businessman, but now he's in rags, and he's filthy, and he's leaning over a cup uh, to drown his sorrows, and the pastor comes up to him and says, "Well, well, what happened? And he said, I just made a lot of bad business choices, and here's where I am. And so the pastor said, you know, God's Word has some answers for you. He says, well, where? He says, anywhere. Just be in the book. So so he finds him a few months later. He's back in designer suits, steps out of a very expensive sports car. Pastor says to him, what happened? He says, turn my life around, and I owe it all to you and God's word. He said, oh, really? What did you find? He says, well, I opened it up, and I put my finger, and the first thing I saw was chapter 11. (laughs) See, chapter 11, as in bankruptcy. Thank you. Okay, we like to think that Scripture has all the answers, the spiritual answers, the right answers for life, and and, and indeed it does. But here's the part that we ignore. Scripture also has all the right questions, some of which we would prefer we were never asked. Others we will spend our entire life trying to figure out. And we'll never fully understand. The Bible is never meant to be wrapped up in a neat set of diagrams and principles so that everything is explained, everything is answered for. The Bible is alive. It itself is an eternal journey of revelation. 
but it's meant to come at us in ways that are transformative, not just informative. And because of that, it doesn't just give you the answers. It asks you really hard questions. And that's part of how it brings change and transformation. The point I want to say to you as we get started here is that you can't reduce the Bible down to what you can handle. You can't domesticate it to what you're comfortable with. You can't make it a pet collie, training it to obey your commands. The Bible isn't something that you use to invite God into your life. The Bible invites you into God's world, his being, his actions. The Bible sets the rules. We don't participate on our terms. We're called to let it into us. And when we do that, we're changed forever. Peterson says, so eat this book, but make sure you keep a bottle of Rolaids nearby if you want to experience it in the way that it's intended. Dog with a bone. Haga. Reading with soul. This is what we are after in this study. Yes, we will talk about how we can trust the Bible. We will talk about what are the principles for properly handling God's Word because it is so terribly handled by so many. We will talk about tools for you to have that will help it happen. But make no mistake, at the end, all of that is merely help towards this mystical spiritual reality that our ancient brothers and sisters called lecto divino, spiritual reading, living in the book so that the living words of the book spring the living God in you and me. See? Think about what your experience would be if that was what the Word of God was for you, not just on Sunday mornings, but every single day, if somehow God himself were able to bring life to you in a way that you were truly communicating with him and you were being changed, imagine your life, because that's what God imagines. Imagine a church where that was the norm, As I prepare this series, I'm more caught than ever with what my real responsibility is to you as your pastor. And it isn't primarily to tell you what this book says. The real call is for you to become those that allow the Word of God to dwell in you richly, to let you be masters of the Word of God. Better yet, to let the Word of God be your master's. And so that's what we're about on this journey. I invite you to open up yourself to a new experience. I invite you to put aside the negative feelings that you have. I invite you to put aside the guilt of past failures to do more with God's Word. Set it aside. That's the past. Let's move forward. And I invite you to open yourself up to an experience of God's Word that is more than what we have made it in our culture. 
that is more than an academic understanding of it, turning it into a textbook about God instead of letting it be the revelation of the living God that enters our very being. That's what we're about. Please be with us for the journey. Let's pray together.